seated. That brings us to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, as we again will read this morning from verses 42 through 47. If you're using the Bibles and the benches, that can be found on page 1694. As we continue to work our way through Luke's, uh, the second volume of Luke's Gospel, the first volume of his Gospel is named Luke. And here we have the Acts of the Apostles, Volume 2. You remember that this description of the activity of the early church, these activities which characterized uh, the early Christian church, comes right on the heels, this description of that comes right on the heels of uh, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. So we'll read from Acts 2, beginning at verse. Uh, 42, this is God's holy word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need, Every day, they were, uh, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ and friends, Even though Jesus had ascended into heaven, He was continuing to work powerfully by the Holy Spirit and through the apostles. The book of Acts is the record not merely of the apostles' work and of the early Christians' work, but it is a record of Jesus working by His Spirit and through His apostles. In verse 43... We read that everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. You see, through the apostles in the book of Acts, Jesus was continuing to give humanity a foretaste of the great glorification day which was coming. All of that work that Jesus had done that we read about in the Gospel of Luke, performing miraculous signs and healing people and reconciling those who are alienated, all of that He continued to do by His Spirit through the apostles, in the book of Acts. But he was not only working to give a foretaste of glorification to the fallen human race, but he was enlisting people, right? Through the ministry of the apostles, through the ministry of the church, he was enlisting people who were not yet part of those who would receive the blessings of the glorification that was coming. He was enlisting people to true faith in himself, so that they would stand in that day and enjoy His blessings too by His grace. And not only was He bringing people in and listing them, but He was establishing and shaping the church and teaching the church by His Holy Spirit through the apostles to care for those who had already been enlisted unto that great day of glorification, those who had already come 
to to faith in Jesus Christ. These were the two tasks of the church, as we saw last week. To enlist people in the work of evangelism and outreach, and then to care for those who are already brought in, already enlisted into the fellowship of those who would be called Christians, who would receive the outpouring, the full outpouring of the glorification at the last day. And we saw that this little description of the early church's ministry, this activity which characterized the early Christian church in these passages really focuses on how Jesus shaped the church to care for those who had already been brought in. Now you've got to be convinced along with me that Jesus is the one who is shaping the early church by His Spirit and through His apostles. If you don't understand that, then you'll just read the book of Acts as a record of what happened in history, which might be exciting because you see what the Lord was doing then, but it wouldn't have necessarily a lot to say to us about what the Lord wants us to be now. But you see, if you acknowledge that Jesus is the one who is shaping the church then by His Spirit and through His apostles, then you will look at what He has shaped and say, yes, that is the model that we are to follow. I want to remind you, this is exactly what Jesus is doing. Remember in chapter 1 of Acts, the first three verses, Luke says, look, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach in the Gospel of Luke. He's talking about volume 1. And when he says what Jesus began to do and teach, he's implying that Jesus is continuing to work in the book of Acts that he's now writing. Jesus is shaping his church in Acts. Remember, he hadn't been taken up to heaven, Acts chapter 1, verse 2, until what? After he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. So the apostles are shaping the early church, they are teaching the early church based on the instruction they heard from Christ before he ascended. And the product of the apostles being used by Christ to shape the church is what Christ wants his church to be. He appeared, verse 3, to them, the apostles, over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. He's instructing the apostles so that they will then instruct and shape His church. Acts chapter 1, verse 23, when Judas had been putting himself to death in shame, he needed to be replaced. And where did the apostles look to find who should be replaced? They looked to the Lord's will. They cast the lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Because the Lord was putting Matthias as the twelfth apostle to be the one that he wanted to lead and shape his church along with the other eleven. And if you wanted further proof of this idea that what we are reading in the book of Acts, when we are reading the characterizations of the early church is a model for us, remember we said last time that there are three of these summaries characterizing the activity of the early church that Luke sets aside in a special way. He's not just talking about history, for example, in Acts 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit in the great day of Pentecost. But then he takes a little break in between before he records the next great event, and he talks about, sort of takes a step back and says, by the way, this is what the church looks like. We said that he signified that by changing the tense of the verbs that he was using. And then he goes on, back to the history. He'll talk about the healing of a lame man, which we'll look at next time in Acts chapter of 3 and 4, and then after that he stops again, takes a step back, and gives another little summary in chapter 4, verses 32 through 35, shifting the verbs again to say, listen now, take a step back, look at this, Christians. This is what the church is like. 
established by Christ, shaped and taught by Christ, by His Spirit, through His apostles. Look at these descriptions and conform yourself to them. He does it again. Ananias and Sapphira, the event, chapter 5, 1 through 11. And then another summary, chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Shifting the tense, taking a step back, saying, Church, this is what Jesus wants His church to be like. And so we come to this description. It is prescriptive for us. And what was the church doing? They devoted themselves, verse 42, to the apostles' teaching. We looked at that last time. We talked about the passionate and the fervent, the uncompromising devotion of the people of God to the apostolic ministry, primarily meaning the preaching of the word that the apostles were doing as the church was gathering together. It was an admonition to us not only to desire to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, but to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus in the Scripture through the apostolic ministry. Those who had been appointed by Christ to be His ambassadors, be those who are appointed for the ministry of the Word, to teach and to preach, to build up the saints. We talked about how that challenged our own default cultural neglect of public worship. Not only our, our personal apathy, not caring about growing in knowledge, but also, even if we care about it, to resist the apostolic ministry and to forsake the assembling of the saints together. That's not what the church is to be like. We are to be devoted to the apostolic ministry, aren't we? Primarily the preaching of the Word. They were also devoted to what? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, we said. To the fellowship. And we said three things about that. First of all, it's really simple. That the members of the early Christian church actually spent time together doing the mundane things of life. Verse 44, all the believers were together. They actually spent time with each other. They, verse 46, took some meals together. Right? It wasn't some spectacular, extraordinary, super holy thing that every time Christians came together they had to do. No. They spent time with each other. Those who were bound together, belonging to Christ and the peace and the joy of the Holy Spirit, spent time together. We were not designed, we were not created to be by ourselves. Were we? There was, uh, secondly, a financial aspect to this word fellowship, wasn't there? We said that that word could also be translated partnership, as Paul does in, first, or in Philippians chapter 1, verse 5. Because of your fellowship or partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I thank God for you and I pray for you. And we see this is happening in the church, in the early church. Verse 44, they had everything in common. They sold their possessions and goods and gave to anyone as he had need. As we said, that didn't mean that they pooled, they sold actually all of their resources by the law of God and gave it all to the apostles and then later the elders so that they could disperse according to their will. No, that's not how it worked. It works just like it works today. That the apostles would make known the needs of someone and then the church would rise out of their own will, joyfully and giving thanks to God and to provide for those who had need. Partnership with each one, seeing that we're bound together in Christ. When one has need, we will all rise to meet that need. That's why the deacons maintain the benevolence fund for that very reason. Partnership in the Gospel. When Paul speaks about that, he's also speaking about supporting the ministry of the Word. 
church planting and evangelism. All things pertaining to the good work of the church takes money. It's part of the fellowship. It's part of the partnership that we all have together in the Lord. This is what the early church was doing, Luke says. And part of, thirdly, what, the, what was characterizing the fellowship of the early church was an infectious joy and peace in the gospel of Christ. Verse 46, they had glad and sincere hearts. They praised God and they enjoyed the favor of all the people. You see, the Christians were overcome in the early church with the power and the magnificent grace of God that they had been redeemed from all of their sins and miseries. It had gripped them. They were so thankful and excited that the glorification which was coming is theirs by faith in Christ that they lived all of their lives, even they went through their trials, with a deep-seated joy and peace that other people, even people who thought they were insane for believing what they turned to be a myth, still recognized the joy and the peace that those Christians had and the stability then that came in their lives and gained the favor of all these people. Paul talks about in spite of severe sufferings, believers in Thessalonica, for example, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit and you became a model to all the believers. And not only that, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. You have turned to God from idols. You now serve and live for the true God and you are waiting for the Son from heaven whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And that grips you. This is the sense of joy and peace that Christ's church should have. This is what characterized the fellowship of the early believers, in spite of their sufferings. And what else characterizes the church? What else is our model? Voted themselves, verse 42, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship today to the breaking of bread. To the breaking of bread. And it would be better for us to read verse 42, to the breaking of the bread. To the breaking of the bread. It is significant that Luke, when he writes, the original language uses the definite article the before he writes the word bread. The breaking of the bread. That is important because... That is the phrase that Luke uses in his first volume in the Gospel of Luke to refer specifically to the celebration of the Lord's Supper which Christ had instituted before He died. Luke chapter 24, verse 30. This is after Jesus has died, after Jesus has risen from the dead and is walking around on the road to Emmaus, Jesus said, or it, this, Luke describes the activity of Jesus, Luke 24:30. when He was at the table with them, He took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. That's all very clear language. He took the bread, He gave thanks, and broke it. That's clear language referring back to the words of institution that Jesus gave when He had the Passover meal, the Last Supper, with His disciples before He went to the cross. The breaking of the bread. Luke 24, verse 35. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when He broke the bread. Now think about that. These people 
who did not know that Jesus, the risen Christ, was the one walking with them along the road. Their eyes were shielded from recognizing that it was him. When did it trip in their minds that it actually was Jesus? It's when he broke the bread with them. Now keep in mind, it's not just that he started eating food with them that they realized that it was Jesus. They realized it was him when he gave, he spoke the words of institution in the Lord's Supper the ones that he initially established with the disciples before he died. The the Lord's Supper, which had begun to be practiced, they recognized the words of institution which he spoke, and, oh, that's Jesus. This is the term that Luke is using, the breaking of the bread, to describe the celebration of the Lord's Supper in the early church. Now, I want you to notice uh, something about verse 46. Okay, look at it with me in, Luke, in Acts 2. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. There are two things going on in that verse. They broke the bread in their homes. That's referring to the celebration of the Lord's Supper specifically. And they ate together with glad and sincere hearts is referring to them on a regular basis, taking their meals together, spending time together. Of course, in the early church, they were meeting many times for the public assembly of the church in homes. Now, in a sense, people think of that as very different from today because we come to a church building, but really it's not that different. All right, In, the, in those days, they met in houses because those who were wealthier would have houses large enough to gather together the assembly of God's people. Now, today, I mean, you could consider this particular church building, you know, our house, right? I mean, it's not like Jesus Christ himself holds the title to this physical property. It's not like the elders of this church consider the grounds of this church part of their assets, right? I mean, in a sense, the physical facility belongs to all of us as people who contribute to the offerings, say, of this congregation for its maintenance or for its modifications and improvements, whatever. I mean, it's just an extension, really, of our own homes, our own property. I mean, the church is not composed of a building. The church is just a place where God's people meet. We are the church. We, the people of God, the members of this church, under the oversight of our elders and minister of the word, ministers of the word, and deacons. We are the church. This is just a building. It's like uh, one of the houses in which we're meeting that all of us happen to sort of own in common, right? This is what's happening. They're coming together. The early church, okay, is partaking of the special sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the breaking of the bread, in their case, in the context of a meal. So you see, they would come together for a love feast. They would come together to eat, Maybe you can even call it like a potluck, okay? They come together, and in the course of that meal, then they would, those appointed, would pronounce the words of institution and have the congregation partake of the Lord's Supper together. But they're two different things, all right? Now, it's very clear if we would approach the Scripture and ask the question, what do we think that it says about how often the early church was celebrating the Lord's Supper? 
Yes, it may not be possible to pinpoint an exact frequency, but it is fair to say, I think, that the early church was characterized by partaking of the Lord's Supper, the breaking of the bread. By Acts chapter 20, we'll see it later, it says, verse 7, on the first day of the week, they were gathered together to break the bread. Far from an infrequent practice in the early church, the administration of the Lord's Supper was a regular part of the church's activity. First Corinthians 11. When you come together regularly as a church, Paul says, I hear that divisions exist among you. Part I believe it. There must also be factions among you, etc. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Because, of course, they were celebrating the Lord's Supper in the context of a regular meal. He said, what you're doing is corrupting the actual sacrament of the Lord's Supper because in the meal that surrounds it, People are getting drunk. You're not feeding the poor. You're not letting people who don't have enough to contribute have any part of the meal at all, even the Lord's Supper. You're polluting the sacrament because you're polluting the broader meal, he says in 1 Corinthians 11. My point is there, though, think about his language. When you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Meaning what? That on a regular basis, the church was meeting together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the early church is a model. The early church is shaped by Christ, by His Spirit, through the apostles, to be the way He wants it to be for the care of those who are enlisted into the fellowship of the saints already. And part of that assembly is the regular celebration of the Lord's Supper. It is extraordinarily difficult to make an argument that the early church was not celebrating the Lord's Supper even on a daily basis. Now, of course, as time goes on, and we'll see the development in the book of Acts, the apostles, for various cultural reasons, established and had emerging the Lord's Day, one day a week, for the definite public assembly of God's people. So it is not a stretch. In fact, it is the most in line with the picture of the early church to be celebrating the breaking of the bread when the church gathers together on the Lord's Day under the appointment of the apostolic ministry. Now part of the reason for this, we could explain, for instance, why the breaking of the bread was so central to the life of the early Christians. It's because they understood that the Lord's Supper was an intensification of the mystical union with Christ. And when you understand the benefits of that, it would certainly not be something that you would be looking to celebrate infrequently. But you would naturally, like the early church, without even thinking about it, at the appointment of the apostles, be celebrating it regularly. You know, I've heard people ask questions. You know, these debates say about the frequency of the celebration of the Lord's Supper, they get put at different times and for different reasons, Right? I mean, this debate wouldn't even have occurred to the early Christians and to the apostles. That it was even a question. But, you know, somebody says, well, we have two services on the Lord's Day today, so should we have it morning and evening? And the answer is, well, if you look to the history of 
the public assembly and public worship in the early church, you find that they don't immediately have this set pattern of morning and evening worship. So to ask whether or not they would have celebrated it morning and evening as if everything that we do today, modified for cultural reasons, acceptably, you know, we have to read that back into the Scripture and expect this to be that, that's ridiculous. The, the simple point is that the breaking of the bread is a regular part of the assembly of God's people in the early church. It's a central part. It's as central a part of the worship as the devotion to the apostles' teaching, the preaching of the Word. And that last, that fourth thing in verse 42, they were devoted also to the prayers. To the prayers. Now, it is not to be read as is translated in our passage this morning at the end of verse 42. You notice it says they're devoted themselves to prayer. And that makes it sound like that their devotion about which Luke is speaking here is, you know, their commitment overall in their lives to be a prayerful people. Now, of course, we know that that is the call of Christ to us in our lives out of gratitude. Prayer is the most important part of gratitude, right? The Catechism says we ought to be devoted to prayer. You've heard about us uh, teaching that not only uh, in the public assembly here, not only in our prayer groups, but also at home and really throughout our lives day by day we ought to be a prayerful people. We know that. But that's not what Luke is talking about here. You would read it to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers. The prayers. Now look down a little bit here in verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. So along with their assembling in their homes from house to house, they are meeting, continuing to meet here, together in the temple courts. Now this is an interesting insight into the life of the early Christians. Why were they in the temple, right? Because, I mean, hadn't Jesus come to fulfill all the Old Testament sacrifices and ceremonies of the law that were practiced and repeated in the temple? Well, apparently the early Christians saw no contradiction between believing in Christ and still yet participating in the public liturgy, the public order of worship that was going on in the temple. Now, to be sure, this was because uh, predominantly these are Jewish believers, right, in Jerusalem, in the temple. And so, because obviously the God of their fathers, the God of the Old Testament, is the same God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His Holy Spirit, they, when they come to true faith in Jesus Christ and their eyes are opened, it's not like they set aside the God of their forefathers. In fact, they're honoring the God of their forefathers by coming to Christ and they're still worshiping God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit through the temple worship. Now, why am I saying this? Because the temple worship, you see, was much like our own worship service in that it had a formal order of service. It was liturgical. Right? Prayers were being offered and psalms were being sung unto the glory of God the Father. You could incorporate uh, songs of praise and prayer under this category of the prayers. The point is the Christians are gathering in an ordered service of worship that has a liturgy, that has prayers which are to be recited together. You know that we do that, don't we? Lord's Day by Lord's Day. This is why sometimes 
most weeks, in fact, we speak together a prayer of confession. That is a formal prayer that God's people all recite together to the Lord. You know that in the evening service. Lord's Day by Lord's Day, we, we pray together the Lord's Prayer, right? Those are formal prayers. That's following the pattern that the early Christians felt comfortable to do, the ordered service of worship in the temple. It wasn't just haphazard, everybody just said whatever came to mind, all disordered. No. The Lord had arranged His worship with structure, singing the psalms, praying formal prayers out unto Him, including, of course, the prayers that are spoken in the temple by the priests on behalf of the people today, by the pastor on behalf of the people in the congregational prayer. In that way, our services of worship are structured after the apostolic model. Worship is not, like it's understood to be in many places today, just a haphazard thing where people gather together and some guy gets up there and does whatever he wants, whatever comes to mind. You know, when he stands up there in the first place, no, we believe that there are elements of worship that are ordered by God's Word. They happen to be mentioned here. The apostles preaching and teaching, right? The fellowship, particularly what aspect of fellowship in worship is what? It's the giving of our offerings, right? Our partnership in the gospel ministry, our partnership in supporting the needs of the saints. That's what offerings are in worship. We do that not because we made it up or we thought it might fit nice there. It's because Jesus shaped His church like that, right? The breaking of the bread, the administration of the sacraments is in our worship because it's prescribed here. The prayers, meaning the orderliness of our worship, the actual prayers that we speak together or that we speak that the minister will speak on behalf of the people, the songs that are ordered following the pattern of temple worship, this is what the early church was doing and how it was shaped. This should increasingly describe us. We will devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers. Everyone was filled with awe. Of course, today, the wonders and miraculous signs have died off the scene with the apostles, but we remembered them, and with awe and joy and peace, we look forward to the day when all of that power will be unleashed in our lives. And in the meantime, we devote ourselves to the work of evangelism and outreach and for the care of those whom Christ has already enlisted until that great day. We were together and we have things in co- everything in common. When we are called to, we would sell our possessions, sacrifice everything that is necessary to give everyone as he has need. We continue to meet together. Of course, today, this is our physical home in which we meet. We even share meals together. We praise God and we enjoy the favor of all the people and the Lord will add to us those who are being saved. This is us. If we are to be submissive to the direction of Christ for His church, for us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace and for Your direction and ask that You will conform us more and more as a church family to the uh, image of the early church which you shaped and taught 
by your Spirit through your apostles. Heavenly Father, the church we know could not have anticipated that uh, 2,000 years later and counting, your church would still be here. And the Lord, the further away we get from that time in history, maybe we are the more tempted to devise our own ways of uh, doing church and to think that we need to reinvent the proper way to worship you and to, uh, Lord, follow after the ebbs and flows of cultural patterns, Lord, to be relevant, but we know that the power of Christ is always relevant and submission to your will is pleasing to you and that is what is the most important. Give us grace to follow you. We pray in Christ's name alone. Amen.